Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. It's not often we see a woman's name next to the title Head of Development and Production, but that's precisely what Jessica Harrop does for Sandbox Films, a new science-driven documentary company. Not too important in this day and age. An Emmy-nominated filmmaker in her own right, Jessica has dedicated her career to making movies that inspire passion about science. She's produced content for Netflix, Showtime, Discovery, National Geographic, and PBS. Speaking of Netflix, Jessica's credits include Follow This, as well as James Cameron's Emmy-winning series Years of Living Dangerously, Bill Nye Saves the World, and First in Human. Jessica has a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology, as well as a certificate in theater from Princeton University, where she co-teaches an undergrad film course about climate change. So let's meet and get to know Jessica Harrop. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much for having me. Jessica, I want to begin by asking, how did you marry science and theater? when you were going to college. Where did that combo come from? Well, I I guess growing up, I just always was a performer and I loved theater and it, it's it been a passion of mine to act and direct and be creative. And, and so I knew I wanted to do theater almost as a hobby in college and managed to do it as a minor. And then science was a sort of separate passion of mine uh, that also started when I was a kid in elementary school. And so I wanted to pursue both. And even though they had really nothing in common common. on the outside, (laughs) I, they were the two things I was really interested in. And somehow I managed to to join them uh, in what I do now. What, what was it about science that attracted you? Uh, I think I discovered science in elementary school. I had a teacher in fourth grade who took me out to meet some real scientists in the field. And we went on an expedition on a a local river. And I got to go out in the boat and count, put nets in the river to catch fish and count the number of fish. And we were trying to figure out if a knot should be put in the dam in the river so that the fish could spawn. And I was in fourth grade. That's crazy. And I, yeah. And I thought it was just the most fascinating adventure I'd ever been on. And I just, from then on, loved field research Mm. and science and being outdoors. And when I was a kid, my parents would take me to swamps on the weekend so that I could take notes on the swamps and notebooks. Where did you grow up? uh, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, outside of D.C., and there are a lot of swamps there. <laughs> Not really, but we would we would drive to random swampy places, and <laughs> I would play in the creek, and um, yeah. And then I, in high school, I did a, a summer in Sanibel, Florida, studying marine biology. And in college, I studied abroad in Panama for a semester, studying tropical ecology. And um, yeah, I just I, science was always an adventure. That's terrific. I I think it's very exciting. And I think at the risk of sounding a little stereotypically sexist, that's not usually encouraged among girls growing up. Not that you're that old, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it's not encouraged, but it was for me. I, I think my parents loved that I loved science and 
and my teacher, my fourth grade teacher was a woman uh, who loved science. And yeah, I was, I definitely felt nerdy as a kid. I didn't feel particularly popular, Mm -hmm. but I just, I don't know. I was just attracted to it. Um, And I loved chemistry too. Uh, Yeah. So when you were applying to college and you were applying to Princeton, what was in your head, your end goal? I knew I wanted to study some sort of science. I didn't know which kind. I knew I had, I had read at Princeton that Princeton had this tropical ecology program in Panama that allowed a science major to study abroad, which was super interesting to me. Um, and I knew I wanted to do a lot of theater and art too. And Princeton seemed like a place that'd be open for that. I applied to a lot of schools. I didn't really know where I wanted to go, but I knew those were the two areas I was interested in pursuing. The arts part of this, was that about being in front of the camera or behind the camera, so to speak? It was first about performing. I was a super performative kid and put on shows all the time and wanted to act. Um, And I acted in a lot of a lot of plays and musical theater productions throughout high school and college. But I think as I got, as I got older and moved up in college, I also started taking directing and set design and uh, thought about writing a little bit. And I think I decided at some point, right as I was graduating college that I couldn't, didn't want to be an actress that Mm -hmm. I didn't want sort of myself, my worth to be associated with my looks and my uh-huh. auditions. Mm-hmm. And I hated auditioning. And I wanted to do something that I felt like I was more in control of than acting. So what happened when you graduated Princeton professionally? Yeah. So my science thesis advisor, Steve Pakala, who's a great scientist and was an early men- mentor of mine at Princeton, I was starting a company called Climate Central as I was graduating. And the company was, had a mission to communicate climate change to the public. And he said, he sort of saw in me this, this pull between acting and being a scientist. And he sort of said, why don't you just communicate science? Why don't you become like a female Bill Nye and help communicate science to the public? And here you can come work at this startup that uh, I'm helping to start. Mm -hmm. And so I went and worked there and that's where I had no background in film whatsoever. I had never even seen an edit suite or touched a camera, but at that job, we were such a tiny little startup. They sent me to editing school. They sent me out with a camera crew to film web videos for them. I got to practice being an on-camera personality a little bit. Yeah. I sort of learned what what making a film looks like. Wow, that's fabulous that you were exposed to all of that and encouraged. What year was this? That was in 2008 is when I graduated. And And I was at Climate Central for, yeah, I was there for a little under two years, Mm -hmm. just sort of learning and soaking things up. And and it was because I had studied under this scientist that I got the job. Mm -hmm. And then from Climate Central, because I'd been spending two years communicating climate change, a a Nova director in New York, because uh, I was also trying to move to New York because that Climate Central is based still in Princeton, New Jersey, and I was desperate to move to Manhattan. Um, <laughs> well, we and, know, that's a commuting town. I mean, there are people who live in Princeton and <laughs> commute to New York. Yeah. It's a bit of a schlep, but they do it. Yeah, no, it's true. But I was, yeah, I was, I was 20, 
whatever, 22 or something. Right. And I was desperate to be in the city. And so I was networking a lot, trying to, to find people in New York that would hire me. And this director who was, he was just starting a Nova episode on clean energy. And he was looking for an associate producer. And I managed to convince him to hire me, even though I had really no experience in real television. I'd just been making these web videos, but I had this niche. I had this science background and specifically climate background. So mm. he he took a chance on me. And that's sort of what launched my whole career from from then, being able to be an associate producer on other television shows. So where were you in this whole venture being female? Were you an anomaly? Yes. So I think in science, science is very male and documentary film is very male. So when you, ha- when you work in science film, it's extremely, especially male. Yeah, it's a double um, whammy. Yeah, it's a double whammy. I think almost every every television show or thing I worked on was run by white men. Um, I have to also say that I had a lot of men who were my mentors who lifted me up and saw the value in me and championed me. So I wouldn't be where I am today without them. I also felt like it was an, a boys club. There were a mm-hmm. lot of times when I felt like I had to prove myself more. There were men at my level who were doing similar work to me who seemed to just skyrocket up and get, you know, get promoted before I would. Um, you know, there was there was one job I found out that the men working uh, below me were making more money than me. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there's there mm-hmm. were things like that throughout. But um, but at the same time, yeah, my thesis advisor, a lot of the men that I worked for did really mentor me and teach me a lot. So Right, saw so you as a person and not a female. Yeah, so I, mm-hmm. I think I saw b- both sides. And I think now mentorship is so important in this industry. You know, it's really the only way you hear about jobs, you get jobs. So I'm now, it's important to me to try to find young women who want to do this to, to help. And sort of pay it forward in a sense. Yeah. It's terrific. After that job, what happened? Yeah, so then I worked uh, on this PBS Nova episode, and and from there I was sort of all of a sudden a freelancer in New York City, um, at an associate producer level, mm-hmm. and I bounced from project to project. I was an associate producer for I think around seven years. Did that um, work for you, literally and figuratively? That was okay. Yeah, yeah. I think networking was such a huge part of it, just telling people who I was, and I think that. I was in this unique situation where there were these science shows and nobody in the industry really knew, had a science background. So I sort of was able to get jobs on shows because they'd say, oh, we, it would be great to have one person who can talk to the scientists. <laughs> right. So I would get these like science producer roles where I'd get to come in and be the person who'd say, you know what, I'm going to buy the textbook on the immune system and learn it so that somebody on the staff can can talk to the immunologists and speak their language a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found myself playing that role a lot, which really helped me move up quickly, I think, mm-hmm. which was cool. Did uh, Sandbox Films follow that or you were still doing your freelance? Because I said in the introduction that you had, you produced content for a, a whole bunch of venues. So that's where what you were doing for those seven years, the Showtime, the Discovery, the National Geographic, and so on. Yeah, so so actually, so the, I was an AP for about seven years, and then I, I started getting producer roles and started getting executive producer roles. So I was a freelancer for probably closer to 10 years 
total. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of that, my last job was on Follow This, which was a Netflix series. And I was actually the showrunner. So I was, um, I had about 27 people working on the show under me and I was in charge of it, which was amazing, an amazing opportunity. What is opportunity. Follow This about? It's sort of like a 60 Minutes for Millennials uh, huh. starring BuzzFeed news reporters. Okay. So each episode is a BuzzFeed news reporter going out in the field doing uh, an investigation into something. Uh, so every episode was very different. How are electric scooters changing cities, mm-hmm. transportation systems? How are, should we, should Seattle have safe consumption sites for heroin users? Should, huh. um, it was very eclectic. Yeah, it's extremely eclectic. Um, but and there were twenty episodes, and each one was twenty minutes, and it was a Netflix original series. Um, so, so that was a huge opportunity for me to sort of run a show. I was more; I wasn't as in the day to day weeds of of making the show, making an episode. But I was giving notes. I was making sure everything was running smoothly, and loved it loved the the loved sort of being above the the day to day minutia mm. of the edit room. I loved like managing people and all of that. So so yeah, as that was coming to an end, Greg Baustead at Sandbox Films reached out to me and he said, you know, they were that the Simons Foundation, uh, where he worked, wanted to start thinking about funding more films, um, more si- films about science. And he'd gotten my name from a couple of people. And he and I had a, an initial conversation and, and just got along really well. And that was a, almost, that was about a year and a half ago. I decided to join him and the two of us sort of figuring out what Sandbox Films would look like over the last couple. So we've been sort of working on it for a year and a half and just launched the company a couple months ago. We want to make science films that will reach people who don't necessarily consider themselves science lovers. Right. Uh, that don't feel like science films. You know, we don't want to make films with talking heads and voice of God narration. We want to make <laughs> artist-driven films that, are, that happen to be about science. They're not, for example, a Nova episode about black holes where you're going to interview all of the, the best and brightest black hole scientists. and and stitch that together and sort of explain and teach the science of black holes. Instead, we have a film about black holes that's coming out soon. And that is the, it's a verite film that follows the team that took that photograph of the black hole that came out last year. And so it's sort of a behind the scenes film. And explaining the genesis of. Yeah, that's, it's more about sort of the process of discovery and the scientists are characters. They're not experts, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh-huh. We want to play with the form. We want to make films that, that are entertaining and that, you know, you look at social justice documentaries, they come in every shape and size. You know, you've got all different kinds of styles to tell stories, you know, and there are so many human stories and verite stories or, you know, our artistic stories. Whereas in science, there's this sort of commissioning model from networks where it's like, we need to make a film about X, Y, Z, and that's going to be our science film, as opposed to let's tell a story about a scientist on a mission to do something, or let's tell a story about the process of discovery, if that makes sense kind of redefining the genre. Yeah, we want to make a new genre. Mm-hmm. And who's your audience for the most part? We hope our audience is everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we've got obviously a core audience of people who seek out science content. You know, we, we sort of assume they'll like our films because our films are pretty nerdy and full of science. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we also, we want our films to be funny and entertaining and human. We think that people will respond well to them, even people who don't really like science. Uh, we just released a film on Apple Plus called Fireball that was directed by Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. Uh-huh. And one of our favorite reviews of the film, somebody wrote, this is a super nerdy science film that doesn't feel like a science film. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So and it's that's what entertaining we want. as opposed yeah, exactly. to, you know, beating you over the head with facts or whatever. You, you, yeah. want, you want a reaction of people, whether it being angry or uh, 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 I'm going to get involved with this, as well as pleasurable and, and, exactly. and riveting, quite frankly, I guess, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I, is that a slog, you know, to get that average Joe in your average Joe and Jane to be part of your audience? We don't really know yet because we don't have that many films that are out yet. Um, So it's kind of an experiment. I think our goal is to get our films on places like Netflix and Apple plus and these mainstream outlets so that people have access to them. And then as opposed to theatrical distribution, Oh, we, we will have theatrical too. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so our, ideally a film would have a premiere at a festival and then a theatrical run and then, and then maybe a television slot and then a streamer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right now it's a little weird because theatrical is... Yeah, it doesn't really exist. It doesn't yeah. really exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, but no, we want our films to, to make a splash and to have, we want people to go see them. And that's actually sort of how we're thinking about success is, you know, are our films getting watched? And and so far, so good? Or <laughs> so far, yeah, I think so good. We've got four films out in the world right now. Tell us about them. The Most Unknown was a film that followed uh, nine scientists, and each scientist was thought they were studying the thing that was the most unknown in the world. So the brain or the universe or alien life. And one scientist visits the next in a circle. To learn huh. about the one leads to work. another kind of exactly. Oh, exactly. interesting. Uh huh. Um, so that film did really well. That that ended up on Netflix. It premiered at CPH Docs. Uh, it, it was on Delta Airlines for a while. Oh, oh um, wow. Uh huh. Yeah. And then our film Human Nature is about CRISPR gene editing, and it actually stars uh, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who just won the Nobel Prize a, a couple weeks ago. Oh, that ain't uh, chump change. Yeah, so so that film is sort of a definitive look at the science of how CRISPR and genetic editing was was born in the scientific community, and then sort of the ethics of whether or not we should do it without telling you what to think, you know, mm-hmm. giving you mm-hmm. all the information you need right. to know to think about gene editing yourself. And that film, yeah, that film premiered at South by Southwest. It went on to a big theatric or a big uh, festival run. It was set to open in theaters on March 13th. So oh, yeah. the theatrical oh, run was, was yeah. cut short. Mm-hmm. It was on the BBC. It was on PBS Nova. And now it's on Netflix. So it's been doing extremely well. That's terrific. And then we've got a film called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. And it's a film about sort of his last interview that he gave before he passed away as he reflects on his life. Mm-hmm. And that's... Fresh my memory. Yeah, Oliver Sacks. So um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, he was a famous 
neuroscientist who worked with all different kinds of people with different neurological disorders mm-hmm. um, and, right. and treated them treated them like people mm-hmm. and really tried to get to know them and who they were as opposed to thinking of them as people who were damaged in some way. Marginalized, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he he was a great character and a great, just a great scientific mind. And this is a, a Rick Burns documentary um, about his life. He gave a very, very intimate inter- interview to Rick where he reflected on his homosexuality, his research, his some issues he had with, with drugs. So it was and a personal marriage with a professional. Exactly, exactly. And with, that's- with, Kind of with his clothes off too, which is really, you know. Yeah, yeah. Really beautiful yeah. portrait of him. And probably yeah. very unorthodox. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is, yeah, I mentioned briefly, but Fireball Visitors from Darker Worlds is a film that we made with Werner Herzog and his- Create one of his creative partners, Clive Oppenheimer, who's a geophysicist. And the two of them, the film basically follows the two of them as they travel around the world studying meteorites huh. and impact events and how those impact, how those meteorites falling has impacted culture around the world too. So there's a lot of places um, and people who who think about these events as important events in in like cultural life as well as scientific life. That meteorites factor in one's cultural life? How, how so? That's fascinating. Yeah. So for example, um, we went to Chicxulub in the Yucatan, which is the big crater that from the, the impact event that killed the dinosaurs. Oh, and just the other day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a, it, they're real, you can't really see the crater anymore, but what you can see in, uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula are these are these holes in the ground called cenotes that are now tourist attractions. You can go swim in these like beautiful underground swimming holes. But those holes were actually formed when the asteroid hit. So it's a ring of these holes. And it turns out that those cenotes were actually extremely important to the Mayan people. And that's where they got their water and that's where they performed their human sacrifice and so they, and they really revered the dead around these sinkholes. And so there's this, they didn't necessarily know where those holes came from, but there's this connection between life and death that is found there that's really interesting when you think about scientifically how those holes were created. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the film is sort of exploring this idea of the origins of life came, a lot of people think, from, you know, the, it, or, or life could have started on Earth from an impact event. You know, those meteorites are, are covered in organic material huh. um, that could have sparked life on Earth. Wow. Or even some people think that maybe something alive managed to come, there, there was actually life on them. That's that's taking it to the next level. That sounds a little but, conspiratorial. <laughs> yeah, but 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 they you do yeah, you do find organic matter on these on mm. these um, meteorites and mm. you can actually study them and see you know, what other rocks out there might have on them in terms of chemical compounds and, gotcha. and things like uh-huh. that. And they, uh-huh. and they have, you know, proteins and, and things on them. Mm-hmm. And they also have the ability to wipe out life on Earth. So it's this weird, 
dynamic origins right? and yeah. ends of life and 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 how different cultures think about that too mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i've said this so often particularly when i meet and interview women who involved in the documentary field business and in the documentary business that there's such incredible learning tools. I, I just can't say enough about documentaries. And there are certain ones that I've seen at film festivals or on television where it just was so obvious. These should be shown in schools. This is what, you know, should be done in the classroom. And and it's not. We definitely want, want an educational life for these films. I think it's... Um, just yeah, may not be super lucrative, right? I mean, is that the problem yeah, also? Yeah, I think it's it's not even that because often you can carve out the educational rights on a project. Even if you sign a deal with Netflix, they'll say it's okay if you give these for, if you use these for educational purposes. I think it's just a lot of work to get the word out that it's available to it's not something I, I specialize in, so I'm not even really sure mm-hmm, how to mm-hmm. do it. But it's definitely, it definitely feels like, why can't it be easier to make all these films available to schools? But yeah, there's also, there's money at stake and time and yeah. Well, but on know. the other hand, as you're talking about topical issues like climate change or whatever, mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. with those topics are more important now than ever before. And not for nothing, based on what has happened politically recently, you're going to have quite an ally with John Kerry being a special climate advisor. I actually got to help produce an interview with him back on Years of Living Dangerously, and he's he's a great climate ally for sure. Climate change films are so tricky to make. Why? Because I feel like we've been trying to tell this story for so long and it's not clear why it's not working or resonating. (laughs) And I think, yeah, I mean, I, so I went, I went and, and did, did a shoot in Greenland, for example, you know, years ago and you get to Greenland and everything's melting. You're wearing a t-shirt on an ice sheet and you can just hear the ice melting and you can see the ice melting. And there's, it feels like a thunderstorm around you of ice just caving off into the water. And you're just thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, this is going to be the best episode ever. It's going to change so many minds because I'm standing here and it's so visual and it's so great. And yet people who watch that, there's just, it doesn't translate in the same way. It's not sexy enough for the viewer in a way. Is that what you're saying? Or the viewer's like, I don't know. It looks like there's a lot of ice up there still. But it's and, Greenland and what do I care? And it's Greenland and it's far away. And, and what does that really have to do with me? And, mm-hmm. and I don't, and I'd love to change my behavior. Like I, I, you know, have energy efficient light bulbs now and I'm trying to use less plastic. So what am I really supposed to do? And I, and it, it's, it's just challenging to think of think up a film that might actually change minds enough that we would change things that everybody would say to the government, we need to do something about this. You know, that now. really is or, such a fascinating point. Why not? What more is it that you have to do that one has to do? I don't mean necessarily sandbox films, you know, to drum this into our heads, our lives. 
I, I just don't understand. And for all the times that we see what it looks like with, you know, th- one plastic and nothing that's biodegradable and on the shores of these beautiful places, it just, oh, well, you know, shit happens. You see the same Im- images over and over again. The polar bear, the ice falling, the plastic, the hurricane flooding, mm-hmm. the forest fires. I mean, we're seeing terrible images almost every day. You turn on the news and you're like, well, what natural disaster is happening today? And <laughs> right. it probably it's, it's getting worse because of climate change. Um, and yet it just, it's, people have so much else on their minds in the moment. It's just such a hard, such a hard problem. I'm still looking for the, for the perfect <laughs> pitch, you know, mm-hmm. the, the perfect mm-hmm. film to work. But so does it make you want to say that Sandbox Films has a mission? Yeah, I mean, in Sandbox Films, we actually don't specialize in climate change or, you know, and a lot of climate films actually wouldn't fit into our mission because our, our, we do have a mission and it's our tagline is a culture of questioning. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is we want to create films that ask more questions than provide answers, that make you think mm-hmm. that explore this idea of science being the art of asking the right questions huh. and um, that, that highlights sort of that process of scientific discovery. You know, filmmaking too, I think, is the art of asking questions and it is in its own right using the scientific method to tell a story. You know, a really great documentarian has a question that they want to answer and they set out to to talk to people about it and to see what the story is. And as they're making the film, that question changes and the film they end up with is different than what they started. Right. It's the same in science. And so that's what we want to explore. And that's what we want to celebrate at Sandbox Films. We don't have any political agenda. We actually don't want to, we don't really want to make films that are about applied science. So we don't really want to make films that that sort of start with the science as a baseline and then talk about like how we're going to apply the science in the world. So, you know, well, give an example of what it is that you don't want so, to do. Well, so a lot of a lot of climate films sort of start with this idea that that, you know, the climate is changing. And then they're about sort of should we like they're following people who are trying to shut down a power plant or something like that. Or they're, they're following the activists. So it's, less it becomes political. Yeah, it's political. And it's also sort of about the application of science that's already been done. We want to tell the story of like how that science was done how we know what we know and mm-hmm. what, and how do we question what we know. Same with, with medical films. You know, we want to tell the story of the immune system and how much we know and don't know about it and how that, how it, immunity can help us learn about the creation of a vaccine. We're less interested in the story of how the vaccine that we made is going to be implemented. Okay. How it's going to be given out into the world if that makes sense. I understand. I understand. So what does Sandbox Films see for its future? We want to create this new genre. We want to make, we want to prove that people will enjoy watching science focused films Mm -hmm. that are artistic in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd love to see our films win awards. We'd love to see our films reach big audiences. We'd love to both work with some of the best 
filmmakers out there like Werner Herzog. And we'd also love to find some emerging voices and some diverse voices to work with. Um, it's a big part of our mission is to, uh-huh. you know, increase diversity in front of and behind the camera, um, you know, inc- you know, expand our notion of what it means to be a scientist. I think most, we see scientists all the time and they tend to come from, you know, a handful of organizations, institutions, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, and we want, we want to tell stories about indigenous star knowledge, things like that as well. What's indigenous star knowledge? I've not Um, heard that term. Well, we we gave a Sunday. So we also give grants uh, to films about science through the, through Sundance Institute. Um, Mm -hmm. It's another way we work with artists. Um, And it's a great way for us to, to work with sort of new emerging voices in in the science space. And we gave a grant earlier this year to a project uh, that is sort of telling the life story of this, of a Cree elder who is, uh, he's been called the Indiana Jones of indigenous star knowledge. He's, has all of this indigenous knowledge passed down to him through his his tribe um, about stars and astronomy and wow. uh-huh. um, and he's now working with astrophysicists. Uh, I think he's working with um, a scientist at MIT now, and they're sharing knowledge. Um, and so so we we're really interested in finding those stories too about science in in places that aren't necessarily sort of the ivory tower. That's of, fascinating. I, I, I mean as in the who knew kind of department. Yeah. So our, I think our goal is, yeah, is to, is to make the whole industry more diverse, tell more diverse kinds and of And user-friendly, right? Yeah, yeah. We shouldn't be afraid of your films. And what I no. mean by that, in quotes, is, oh, God, you know, that, <laughs> that it's just, it's not going to be entertainment. We want you to, to learn things without really feeling like you're having yeah, to learn right, something. Right. <laughs> exactly. I guess, I, I guess almost putting one over on us and there's nothing wrong with that in my opinion. Talk about yeah. who works with Sandbox. Are there a lot of women on the team? Well, right now it's just me. It's mainly just me and Greg Baustad. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the only two full-time people uh, and so company. your directors are all freelancers basically? Yes. So every film project is pitched to us. Um, Diversity is definitely a challenge that we're facing because, again, it's it's science, which is very male-dominated, documentary, which is male-dominated. Put those together, it's even harder. Um, but we def- we've definitely signed a couple projects recently directed by women. We're looking for those projects. Yeah, so it's more than one public service you're offering. We sort of have two ways that we work with people. We give grants through Sundance Institute to, you know, artists trying new things with science films. And we give, I don't know, 10 to 15 grants a year. And then we have our films, which we give equity. And it's actually what we call artist-friendly equity investment into our films. So we actually can recoup the money if the film makes a big sale. And all of our our profits or a recoupment goes back into our mission so we can reinvest it into other films. Uh, so we want to, we want to have a sustainable model that's also artist friendly. So I say it's artist friendly in that we don't take a premium on our investment, which is unique in the industry. Yeah. Um, you really are an anomaly on so many levels yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it's such a big public service and you're not, you know, looking to make massive profits here. And what are, what are ticket sales? I mean, you have a mission. 
we're unique in a lot of different ways. And, and we're, that's why we want to get the word out there that we exist <laughs> because people are confused by us a little bit because mm-hmm. we are, mm-hmm. we're investing, but it's very artist friendly. We want films that are, that are science films, but that not, aren't necessarily super science gotcha. mm-hmm. looking like we want mm-hmm. those artist driven, beautiful cinematic documentaries, yeah, characters and verite and, it's a perfect marriage as far as I'm concerned. You're being entertained and you're le- learning at the same time. And what, what better combo is there? As you look back over your career and you see the steps that you have taken to get here, and I'm going to use that term to get here. Is this where you want to be? I have to admit, I, I pinch myself a lot because I feel so lucky to have ended up here. I feel like Greg Baustead has been an incredible creative partner in this. We work so well together. We are both totally obsessed with the mission. <laughs> couldn't be more obsessed with what well, I'm that's doing. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't love the films that we're working on anymore. I mean, I, I get to work with these amazing artists who are telling these really interesting stories. I get to watch their films all the time. I get to collaborate with them creatively I also get to have a, a job that, that isn't freelance anymore. Uh, I was a freelancer for over 10 years, and that was really stressful. It takes a toll. It takes yeah. a toll. Yeah. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're always looking for you the next thing. You have good years and you have bad years, and that sort of sucks. Yeah, when you you're never relaxing. And, and I think especially as a young woman, you're just always having to prove yourself and you're Mm. always having to negotiate, you know, and you're always sort of feeling like you're not getting quite good enough rate or, you know, you're just always feeling stressed out. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And it's it's been just such a breath of fresh air to be able to have the confidence that I have like a, a, I have health insurance now, you know, I, (laughs) Uh I, I have some things that I, didn't have for so long as a freelancer that just make my life feel better too on a personal note. Well, and it's also the respect and the, and the understanding and the acceptance. It's been a slog for women in this field, in the science field and in the filmmaking field. I mean, I'm very heartened by the fact that I have interviewed a lot of female directors, for example. And while mm-hmm. there's still a long road to hoe, it's encouraging to see the estrogen out there. <laughs> Yeah. It took people to say, you know what? I believe in her. I'm going to hire her. Uh, I'm going to give her the opportunity. Also, Jessica, nobody, you know, suffers fools gladly. Yeah, no, it feels, it was a fight. So I think, yeah, it it feels really good Mm -hmm. to pick and choose who you work with. Well, what you're also saying about a breath of fresh air, what struck me was, yeah, and the ability now to exhale, you know, for you to be able to exhale. Yeah. And to pay it forward Mm. to find those projects and those artists that are doing really interesting, good things that might get overlooked by other funders Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. um, yeah, who have really interesting, unique voices with stories to tell. It's, it's, it's kind of awesome to be able to, to give them money and, and let them tell their stories. Oh, for (laughs) sure. Oh, that's great. um, Anything you want to talk about that you can in terms of what may be coming up that you're really excited about? We've got, I mean, about 17 films in the works at various stages. So, so you're, um, you're busy, your plate's full. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and some really exciting ones, hopefully coming in the next year or so. Well, you'll keep us abreast of that. Yes. We owe you and Sandbox Film a debt of gratitude. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Yeah. I, I feel, like I said, I pinch myself a lot. I feel extremely, extremely lucky to be in this position. So well, I think it's terrific. Yeah. What better way to end? Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your life and your work with us. It's been really interesting and terrific to get to know you. And please keep us in the sandbox film loop. Will do. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Totally my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm -hmm.